Very good morning to you. My name is Neil. I'm married to the wonderful Kate. It's great to see you all this morning. If you're new here or you're visiting, you're very, very welcome. It's really great to see you. If you are new or visiting, please go and see. There's a bunch of guys. They'll be over at the um, in blue t-shirts over at the Hello Welcome desk. We'd love to connect you either with the life of this church or if you're looking for a church and it's not this one, uh, then we'll try and help you find a church. We don't mind what part of the body of Christ you go to, but we do believe that as followers of Jesus, we are to be in church somewhere. So we'd love to help you um, with that. Uh, on the subject of church, over the past few weeks, we've been looking um, at the church on a Sunday morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, James did an outstanding job. He was looking at the subject of community. Last week, uh, we looked at the church's family. And one of the things we talked about is how, uh, certainly if your family is anything like um, ours, you'll know that occasionally, and I, I mean only from time to time, of course, uh, but families disagree, allegedly. Um, and so if our own families, and by that I mean our immediate families, I mean our extended families, if our own families are anything to go by, it would make sense that, again, just from time to time, uh, and maybe more often than that, here in the church family, we too may have disagreements. Uh, and these sort of disagreements, what sort of things could they be? Well, they could be over all kinds of things from, you know, is the worship too loud? You know, or is it too quiet? Uh, is the preaching uh, too long? Or is it too short? Or is it perfect in every single way, for example? Um, uh, should we bring back Krispy Kreme donuts and ditch the jam ones? Or should we ditch donuts altogether and bring back bacon? Yeah, see, I went there. I went there. I was like, really. Um, yeah, ba bacon in a vegan culture. It's really not going to happen, is it? Uh, and most of these are pretty innocuous topics. Um, but what about disagreements that we may have of more, slightly more strongly held beliefs? Um, for some people, things like baptism. Church went to war over baptism. Lots and lots and lots of people died over the subject of baptism. Infant baptism, adult baptism, dunking, how much water you use, these things are important to some people. Uh, what about the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper? You know, the bread and grape juice, the fact that it's bread and grape juice for a start is, is a big issue to a lot of people. And the fact that it's just there on the side that's an issue to some people. Uh, what about differing views that we may have on gender roles within marriage or sexuality? Or dare I say it in the run-up to a general election, um, what does responsible Christian voting look like? Yeah, and and, and as, as you can see, I mean, there's any number of opinions, perspectives, beliefs that have the potential for causing a degree of conflict, you know, and these and many others are the sort of things that will come up from time to time and quite possibly could become a source of conflict um, between us. And when they do, and I say when and not if, when they do, how are we to deal with it? How do we handle conflict in the church? How do we disagree um, well 
when we are in family. So with that in mind, have a look at Ephesians chapter, end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. Um, the words should come up here on the screen. There should be some Bibles lying around somewhere. If you haven't got a Bible, please feel free to, if you can find one, to take one and keep it. It's Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved brothers and sisters, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your presence with us. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would come and lead us into all truth, that you would have your way with us, and that your, the name of your precious son, Jesus, would be glorified. So imagine, uh, I don't know, I mean, I was trying to think of examples and they're all a bit lame, but imagine you pitch up to house group uh, next week and over a scotch egg or two, which just to plug pub gospels, pub epistles, right? We do pub epistles, we look, we're looking at the book of James, we're being traumatized by the book of James. Um, on the Crooked Bullet, we have scotch eggs at pub epistles. It is the best small group ever, and these are the best scotch eggs ever. So next term, I'm just saying, over, in our example, over a scotch egg or two, um, I have been known to have more than one, over a scotch egg or two, the subject of, I don't know, Brexit comes up. Uh, let's just maybe think about that. And you discover that this delightful chap, you know, that you've been in small group with for years, uh, actually, uh, you discover, holds a political position that's not only the totally opposite of everything that you value, but as far as you're concerned, is totally at odds with everything that you read in the Bible, just for example. Uh, or, I don't know, maybe you're at church one Sunday morning and during the donut break, soon to be the bacon break, um, the young chap, the young chap next to you you've never met before, uh, before he introduces himself to you, he introduces you to the chap who sat next to him and introduces him as his boyfriend. Um, what, what, do you, what do you do? Now, I know these aren't the best um, examples, but you can see what I'm trying to get at. And whatever your position on either of those particular subjects, that's irrelevant. My, my question really this morning is, is it possible um, to disagree with someone and love that person truly and deeply at the same time? Is it possible to hold deep convictions and yet at the same time embrace the people around you for, who for whatever reason reject your deeply held convictions? You know, can you sit in your small group and hold these deeply, deeply held convictions? Things that you've wrestled over and do that alongside someone in your small group who rejects, outright rejects those beliefs. Can you stay in fellowship and can you stay in community is the question. And I think it can be hard, 
it's, I, I know it can be hard, but I think Jesus would say that, yes, yes, we, we can actually do that. And, and how? Well, I think firstly because this is how Christ has treated us. Have a look at Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ just as in Christ God forgave you. One of the things that Paul is saying is that the motivation behind all the compassion that we are to share with one another, all the forgiveness that we are to offer one another, all the kindness we're to show to one another, the motivation behind all of these things is, in fact, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ having forgiven us. It's Jesus Christ having shown compassion to us. It's Jesus Christ having shown kindness to us. We are to live a life of love and grace as God's children because that's exactly what we have received from Jesus. The reason that we continue to reach out to one another in kindness and forgiveness and compassion is because of what Christ has done for us because of what Christ has done to redeem us, because of what he's done to bring his purposes into the world. And his purposes in the world are the reconciliation and redemption of everything. So when Paul says, this is how I want you to act towards one another, even though from time to time you're going to disagree, even though from time to time you may disagree completely, it's because that's how Christ has acted towards us. And commentators call this the reflective ethic, meaning that we are to reflect God's attitude towards other people. We are to reflect the way that God has treated us towards the people around us. So we are to reflect to other people how God sees them in Christ Jesus. We are to reflect to other people how Christ has acted towards us in in forgiveness and dying for our sins. We are to reflect God's kindness that he's shown to us in compassion. And Jesus is very, very serious about this. He's deadly serious about us treating one another in the same way that he's treated us. You know, and so if you think about it, Jesus disagrees with us, disagreed with us, and yet he still died for our sins. If Jesus disagreed with our entire way of seeing the world and of life, and yet he still died for us and gave his life up for us, if this is how Jesus has treated us when he profoundly disagreed with us, laying down his life for us and showing us mercy. This is how God wants us to treat one another, even when we find ourselves in some kind of profound disagreement with someone who's either sitting across the room from us or in our place of work or in our home or sat alongside us in church. I don't know about you, but when I find myself at odds with someone, uh, what I can... Um, when I find myself in a conversation with someone who seems to hold opposite values and beliefs that, that feel completely at odds with mine, I have this temptation to sort of let my anger, let my frustration, uh, sometimes even contempt, kind of rise up and bubble up to the surface. And I justify it because it's righteous anger. It's legitimate. It's godly. It's good. And it's not, actually. It's just my sinfulness. But... Um, but what happens is, it's almost to find a way to justify what I'm feeling. There's a tendency that we may have whereby we can reduce the other in our hearts and minds and, and make them less, somehow less than Christian. We can make them somehow less human. And so we can find ourselves thinking, well, if that's what they believe, they can't, they can't possibly be a Christian. Can't possibly be a Christian to believe that. So we reduce the other. And in that moment, more often than not, I sense the Spirit of God gently but firmly draw alongside me and remind me 
that's not how I treated you. And then he'll drop some kind of verse into my heart, like Ephesians 2, where it says, you know, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you've been saved. And I kind of go, huh, all right. Yes, you're right. Again. Back to the original question, is it possible to hold deep convictions and yet at the same time embrace those who reject those conversations, those beliefs, I believe, yes, uh, for at least two reasons. The first, because we've looked at it, because this is how Christ has treated us. Um, how can we be in community with people who reject some of our deeply, deepest held convictions? Because that's how Christ Jesus has treated us. Uh, and then the second thing is, um, it's actually because it's, it's sort of how Jesus chose his friends. Um, have a look at Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus chose his disciples, it's really interesting. He chose at least some people who fundamentally and profoundly disagreed with one another. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. The only two disciples who get like descriptions of who they were, apart from Judas who betrayed Jesus, are Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot. Now, this can easily get lost on us because it doesn't really mean very much to us culturally, but it's pretty important, especially, I think, given our current politically and socially diverse cultural context, and especially when you think of the very many and varied things that are dividing the wider church right now. Uh, Matthew was a Jew, and at the time of Jesus, the Jews were occupied and oppressed by the Roman Empire. So Matthew, being a Jewish tax collector, was seen by his people as a traitor. He was seen as a traitor of the worst kind. They hated him. He was effectively working for the Roman government, collecting taxes from his own people, from the Jewish people. So he's not a popular chap at all. Now, Simon on the other hand, was a zealot. And the zealots were revolutionaries. And Simon was this fully paid-up member of this violent, this aggressive anti-Roman movement. So you've got Simon, this passionately pro-Jewish anti-Roman political revolutionary, and Matthew, this Jewish pro-Roman government official. And they're both part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. I mean, you couldn't get more sort of extreme, more left-wing, more right-wing, more liberal, more conservative. It's hard to think of uh, people who are more diametrically opposed, who are totally and utterly at odds with one another. You know, think of, um, uh, well, I'm sure you can think of your own examples. Uh, yet, what Jesus does is he unites them to himself, and then he unites them to each other and together in a cause, and it's a cause higher than working for the government, it's higher than a cause designed to overthrow the government, and that causes the kingdom of God. And just so that I don't make it all about, or sound like it's about politics, and Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot was who they felt and believed they were. It was their identity. 
And it's that sense of this is my identity, this is who I am, that can be at the root of so many of the struggles we may have about people sitting alongside us in church who hold different views, which for them isn't so much of a belief. It's much more, this is the very essence of me. This is the very heart of who I am. You know, Matthew's identity was deeply rooted in what he did. His job was everything. Likewise, Simon had given his life to this cause. For Simon, the cause was everything. And yet Jesus takes these two people and says, whether these beliefs you hold are, are, are beliefs or whether they are the root of your very identity, you're going to have to live together. You're going to have to work together. You're going to have to work out your differences. But don't worry. Jesus says, I'm going to change who you are from the inside out as you walk with me and we do life together. Jesus takes two radically different people and he puts them together and he leaves them together. And through this process of doing life together with Jesus, through their just being together with Jesus in the midst, they're going to change. And Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't just zap them, you know, um, so that they become more agreeable to one another and uh, they become new people emotionally. Uh, that's romanticized in the scriptures. That's not what happens. Um, I read this quote from uh, last week, and I think it's helpful. It's quite long, but I, I think I quite like it. Uh, it's from Joseph Hallerman's book, When the Church Was a Family. Let me try this on you. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Persons who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding. And they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know persons who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots, and they seldom experience lasting, fruitful growth in their Christian lives. Then there are those who leave to avoid working through uncomfortable or painful relations with others in the church family. Running away does provide immediate relief from the awkwardness of a hurtful relationship. It is the easy way out in the short term. And there are legitimate reasons to leave a local church. You'll be glad to hear. But persons who leave to escape the hard work of conflict resolution are often destined to repeat the cycle of relational dysfunction with another person in another church somewhere else in town. It's a simple but profound reality, biblical reality. We grow and thrive together, or we do not grow much at all. Why are we seemingly unable to stay in relationship, stay in community, and grow in the interpersonal contexts that God has provided for our temporal and eternal well-being? Um, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that the church is and always has been this place where um, different identities, different ideologies, different, um, a diversity of backgrounds and thoughts all come under the banner of King Jesus. And through the crucible of genuine Christian life, our loyalties actually become the same. And they become loyalties to Christ and the kingdom he's bringing. 
And so I guess I want to say this. Disagreements are just a normal part of healthy family. And the reason I'm addressing this now isn't because there's some um, underlying big secret like disagreement. There's not some great schism. That's not what I'm talking about. You always address these things when there aren't any issues. Does that make sense? So that we're all equipped to deal with them whenever issues do arise. Does that, so you don't, you don't teach into these things into a specific moment because you've got something that you're trying to subliminally say. Um, you teach it because it's the scripture and that's what God's put on my heart. But anyway... Um, Disagreements are just part of normal kind of a healthy family life. And avoiding conflict isn't the solution. Um, conflict, disagreements, opposing views, all of these things are, and more are a vital part of being a family. And the key isn't that we just avoid conflict or suppress it or ignore it, hoping that it will pass. The, the key is in learning how to disagree well. That's what's going to make the difference. And um, rather than going into it here this morning, um, we're going to dig into this this evening. It's interesting, we were doing pub gospels, the pub epistles on Wednesday, and we got to that bit in James where it was all about conflict. I'd already planned to, prepare to teach on this subject this morning, and then Charlie said that he wanted to do this evening on conflict. So um, the Lord is, uh, there's a theme the Lord seems to be bringing to our mind. And so... We're going to dig into the practical element and the practical aspects of this um, this evening, learning how to disagree well. And I would strongly encourage you to come uh, this evening. Charlie will be leading a panel, as Kate has already said. Um, we've got Howard Bell, who is the guru on conflict resolution. I mean, he's, on, he's like in demand internationally to, um, to bring about resolution to major conflicts around the world. Um, I'm joking. Uh, but he's really, really good, and I sit at his feet every Wednesday and, and, and learn in humility. Um, but we'll be having a conversation about how we do this in practice. And the evening service is, is, evening service is so fantastic, right? It is such a sweet opportunity. It's very different to the morning. It's not just some one person lecturing you like this. It's, it's very interactive. There are lots of opportunities for conversation and dialogue. The worship is insane. Worship in the morning is insane, but there's a sweet intimacy in the evening. It's smaller. Um, it's, it's more relation. It's much easier to get to know people. Um, Charlie often provides pizza and stuff like that. It is a really, really fantastic space, and I would encourage you um, to sort of, again, rejig things a little bit, maybe on your Sunday evening schedules, and certainly um, come along tonight, because I think it would be really, really helpful to have as many of you there as possible. Um, the reality is, you know, that if you're part of the church, disagreements are just part of the rich tapestry of life. You know, I think we all want to obey the scripture's command, you know, to get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander. And we want to get rid of every form of malice. I think we all want to do that. Um, I think we all want to be kind and compassionate to one another. We want to forgive one another just as in Christ, God um, has forgiven us. The question is, how do we do that? Uh, and as I said, I really want to press into this. I want us to press into how we do that um, this evening. So come, in, come along this evening and join the conversation. But maybe this will be a helpful um, starting place just for us to end with this morning. And as I was preparing uh, for this sermon, I was reminded of a compassion meditation prayer. By a chap, um, his name is William Menninger. He's a Trappist monk. And the point of it, I think, is to help us 
forgive others and to let go of bitterness uh, and to pray for people that we may be in conflict with or people who we don't agree with. Um, and maybe for some of us this morning, praying this prayer is, uh, is and could be a, st- a starting place, a first step perhaps in moving towards someone who has hurt us or someone that we've been at odds with or someone that we have a broken or a damaged um, relationship with. And I get that praying, even praying this for a person in secret, I mean, just praying it at home. But I understand that praying this for a person who has hurt us or whose values or beliefs offend us, is, is, I understand it's no small task. But I believe you know, in prayer it's a significant step forward. And I think that the invitation is to pray it and to pray it repeatedly, even if you don't feel it, uh, and trusting that over time God will heal our wounds and do a work in us by the Holy Spirit that we can't do in ourselves. And the prayer goes um, like this. So thinking of the person who's hurt or offended us, we pray this. May you be happy. May you be free. May you be loving. May you be loved. May you know the fulfillment of all that God has planned for you. May you experience God's deep, profound love for you. May Jesus Christ be formed in you. May you know his peace that passes all understanding. May all good things be yours. May Jesus' joy be in you, and may that joy be complete. May you know the Lord in all his goodness and compassion. May you be protected from the evil one amidst every temptation that comes your way. May the Holy Spirit fill and permeate your entire being. May you see his glory. May you be forgiven of every sin. I forgive you, or I will try to forgive you for every wound and hurt with all my heart. And may God's goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. Amen. Why don't you stand? We can have the worship band back.